From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producer Picks, highlights from our weekday discussions on race, education, and community. From coffee at the Golden Cup on Jefferson Avenue. We were committed to the east side. To cannabis on Chandler Street. You know, this is how I'm expecting you to impact the community around you. A mature, legal consumer. Also today, we look at women in tech. We are multiplying in technology faster than men. And hear more about the West Side Promise neighborhood. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for being with us. Up first, Reggie Keith, a legacy operator who runs Canna House, a Buffalo-based private social club centered around cannabis. I've been a consumer since I was young, right? 13, 14, I was introduced to the plant. And so I've always had a passion for it. Uh, that passion um, kind of paired with my skill set kind of pushed me to the direction of like, hey, um, I don't want to work for anybody. Uh, what can I do that I love? You mentioned that you were a legacy representer. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Um, so legacy is what they've deemed representing those who were operating in the cannabis space before legislation passed. You know, I don't like to use the black market or anything like that. Yeah. But, you know, we made a successful go of cannabis operations so much so that, you know, the, the state gave up and they <laughs> said, you know what, we need in on that. And yeah. so I think this very industry stands on the shoulders of, of legacy operators. Expungement of uh, marijuana-related crimes. How does that work? Yeah, so it's my understanding. I believe there was some auto expungement originally when the law passed. So I'm not exactly sure of what those crimes consisted of. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, there is a process that if you weren't in like auto expunged, there uh, you can go through. Right there's uh, expungement clinics that are held throughout the state on a regular basis. You can go to the uh, OCM's website, but yeah, they usually have that information available. And um, yes, yeah, it's, it's not as you know strenuous as one would imagine. But yeah, um, a very very important part of seeing that cannabis industry exist is making sure that people that got taken away from their families and homes that were broken up are you know those things are rectified. For those who who are not in the know, what is Canna House? Yeah, man. So we, um, at our origin, uh, is a cannabis-centric social club, but we've really evolved into a uh, consumer resource center of sorts, right? So we focus on, um, we started with activity-based events, so creating dope spaces and safe spaces for people to consume, right? We also provide product awareness, whether that's through reviews or safe sourcing. You know, we want to make sure that people know how to get safe and um, good quality products. Uh, but education and advocacy, making sure that the community knowledge is elevated because that allows for easy integration for these new businesses into the community, right? You can't just imagine you're going to pop up your multi-million dollar company next door to somebody who absolutely doesn't understand what you're doing, right? And then advocacy, you know, um, advocating for um, the consumer. You know, oftentimes the advocacy stops at the purchase. Once you purchase and you're, you know, um, have the product or the plant in your hand, um, you're kind of left to your own you know, um, free will to kind of find your way around. And there uh, is an important opportunity and void in the market to make sure that people have um, a safe space to go to. And we want to advocate for that um, to be um, readily available in most communities. Yeah, and and that's why you have uh, the dope spaces, um, because, you know, not everyone can 
take their product home and you know have a couple of tokes and listen to jazz records right that's a fact man right some people that might be in federal federally funded housing um you just might have a landlord who just doesn't isn't okay with that right you just might be in a position where you can't go home and consume and you need a space that you can do that and in, in, in comfort and um, allows you to still uh, stay true to who you are and so yeah we, we definitely want to make sure we're creating that I was uh I was taking a look at a uh, another interview that you did and you mentioned the term legal consumership. What does that mean? Yeah, so um, consuming as a you know as a pastime of the black community, we've we've oftentimes just uh, been spenders, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, what I really was referring to there is kind of the legal consumership of cannabis. But in general, uh, we really want to talk about the maturation in, uh, of consuming and educated consuming, right? And I think from a place of like maybe just buying your products out in the street, you kind of don't necessarily have a say-so outside of saying, hey, man, I don't really like this product. You know, next time I come back, it could be something better, yeah. right? But, you know, in legal consumership, you have the ability to leverage your purchase power. Right. And so if you telling somebody, hey, I'm willing to come here and spend my money as your space, as a community, if we come together, we can then demand that 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 retail or that location then give us something in return other than just a product. Right. If you're going to be in my community, this is what I'm expecting you to reinvest. You know, this is how I'm expecting you to impact the community around you. Right. And those things are, um, I think, a big part of like a mature legal consumer um you know, yeah. lifestyle. So what, what would that look like then? You know, you've got a, if you've got someone who is not of the community that has a business, a, a power-related business within that community, what does that give back to the community? What might that look like? Yeah, I think it is uh, dependent on the community itself. And I think it's important that you go and poll and ask that community, what is it that they need, right? Oftentimes people go into communities thinking that they have this plan and they're going to come in and this is how they're going to help these folks and Mm -hmm. if those folks don't need that help then that can be you know taken a totally different way and so it's important for you to go ask hey what do i what can i do for you here right instead of dictating instead of dictating and say hey this is what i got yeah give you these crumbs or i'm gonna give you whatever we've thought about in this room with these you know no offense usually like five white male guys are in a room putting together this plan and it's totally void of perspective and that perspective usually leaves like a tone deaf approach to you know, solving some of that community assistance. Yeah, I, I want to actually get back to those uh, those five white guys in a little <laughs> bit. But uh, um, in your position, do you talk regularly with people of color who are in this business, uh, look or looking to get a foothold uh, in this brand new industry? What do you discuss with them if you do? Yeah, um, a big part of uh, our approach to. Um, filling this void in the spaces. We're a membership-based club, right? And so we have a ton of um, peer-to-peer and member-to kind of executive mentor conversations where it is exactly that, right? We have a volunteer program where we come and they can help us set up. But in that time, they're just picking our brains, right? Gathering information about, you know, just understanding the industry, right? A big part of it is just laying a solid foundation of understanding the plant, uh, so many misconceptions out there, um, so many things that we've gotten used to, terms we've been getting used to using that are just outdated or antiquated, and we really need to update everybody, right? So it's like a refresher most mm-hmm. of the time. Um, and then, you know, specifically, if there's somebody with experience, 
who's like, yo, man, I want to get into this thing. I've been doing this already, right? We really help navigate, you know, the approach to uh, licensing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we've gathered a, quite a few resources and we try to do our best to leverage those resources for not just our benefit, but for some of those folks that we're trying to mentor. So do you consider yourself a mentor then? Um, loosely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the responsibility the role that I've kind of matured into is, um, yeah, if you got it, man, it's, un it's unfair to, it's to, to hold on to it by yourself. What's it like moving into these spaces, uh, moving in these spaces uh, with with other people of color who who have the same vision as you? I mean, it's so refreshing, right? I, I've um, you know assessed my skill sets over time, and they've really uh, lended themselves perfectly for this industry. And I feel like that's a natural thing for most people of color that I see. Right. Is this fits us. It allows us to be our full selves. Right. Um, I can walk in as me. I don't have to put on a suit and tie when I'm in meetings. Right. Um, I can even go in smelling like weed. Right. It's not even a bad thing. Right. And so those things I feel like like this booth. <laughs> yeah, right. 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 <laughs> so, you know what I mean? I yep. think that's that's um, that's that's. Um, refreshing to be able to be your authentic self and then um i'm i'm really really impressed by um you know how serious we're taking ourselves mm -hmm. right people are getting over here and it's not about just hey a handout we're like you know we're running a serious business over here and we want to be taken serious and um that that is really really um uh, invigorating and is encouraging and it keeps me going honestly uh, for real is there a fear amongst you or the people you congregate with um, that the licenses to sell and grow maybe in large quantities will eventually or are already being gobbled up by the rich white guys? One thousand percent. Right. The industry's already 92 percent owned by, you know, white owned companies. Right. And that's it's a sad story because this is a baby. It's an infant. There's no reason why it should be. It's it's it should grow up and have to turn into a white dominated industry. Right. We can be intentional about changing that. And big shout out to the majority leader, Crystal People Stokes. I will always, you know, say her name in the highest regard because nobody's intentionally created legislation to kind of combat that. Absolutely. Like, you know, She's a real trailblazer. Real trailblazer, man. Uh, the godmother is what I affectionately call her. <laughs> um, you know, but she she made sure that the bill represented 50 percent um, representation of social equity applicants. Right. Meaning, you know, folks affected by the war on drugs here, you know, our community, um, you know, veterans, women um, and distressed farmers. Right. And so uh, of that group, we fit in a, a few of those categories. And it, that's important because if 50 percent of this industry looks like us, it can truly change our trajectory in our like our socioeconomic you know, um, status here in the country. So I would be remiss if I didn't uh, ask you about uh, the way creativity comes out in like food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk a little bit about that. I heard heard the lemonades bomb. Yeah, man. Shout out Dirty Lemonade, Dirty Products. Um, uh, we also have a sauce line now, Urban Jane's Secret Sauces. But yeah, man. So we've we've always kind of tried to like again be on the cusp of like introducing the community to new things, right? And so um, one of the things we found along our path of like consuming, I grew up in the era of like smoking, right? Just 
rolling mm-hmm. up six, seven blunts. Yep. We're playing the game. We smoke all day. We just get as high as possible, and which is cool, right? But as I matured, I really like so start understanding like there's ailments I wanted to solve. If that's a topical that I wanted to rub on my body, or if you know it's like, hey, I can't smoke in this place. I need to vape. So I started to develop like a diet, like a diversified diet of like consuming options like, okay. okay i don't have to just smoke a blunt yeah right and so then from there it was like all right well let's use butters and let's figure out how to cook stuff and so my brother is actually a, a self-trained chef just partnering stuff together we, we we always did this at as kids you know what i mean like he's been cooking i've been tasting his food forever and i was like this mixologist like i always would like mix a bunch of juices and drinks and stuff like that and so you know as we mature we really started to take that perspective and go hey we got some skills and then we were started doing these events, and we were like, all right, well, we want to provide something outside of just the puff and paint or the murder mystery. And we want to serve people things. Let's infuse the food, mm-hmm. right? And then we're like, well, you know, um, the social, we learned that, of course, social life is about the drinks. You know, you go out on the scene, you go to the bar. And so we had to kind of fill that void of like, hey, I want to give people something to drink, but I don't want to bring alcohol into the scene. And so, um, th- again, those necessities and those needs that we saw that were just like, how do we feel that? We used our creativity to say, hey... You know, we can create products that can fill those voids, right? We want to feed people. Let's cook them some dope-tasting weed food, right? And cannabis-infused food. And then the same thing with drinks. It's like, all right, I want to make sure that people can walk around and and get drinks and feel good about the night. How can we do that? And so it was a, a... Hell of a process just getting to understanding dosage and how not yeah. knocking people out every time you just got them <laughs> together. Um, and, and again, man, that, that kind of like study and, and um, kind of maturing from like street knowledge to like real science uh, really helped us kind of like take that creativity to another level. That's Canna House's Reggie Keith. Now, Jay Moran talks tech and more with Tammy Simon Balden. Tammy is a professional. She's in tech. And we obviously, when it comes to first women in tech, there's a, a shortage. You go down a little bit further when it comes to well, women of color. In tech, it's even smaller. And then uh, here in the city of Buffalo, it's even smaller. Plus, Tammy has a personal story of grief, something that I think a lot of folks will find enlightening from directions. And let's just talk about professionally, first and foremost, and your work with Kubrick. Yes. Tell me what is Kubrick? Kubrick is a research and development company. It's a not-for-profit uh, started back in 1983, uh, came out of CalSpan and UB. Um, and we do a lot of work with government contracts. Probably 90, 95% of the work we do is with government contracts. So we got clients coming in there with uh, some consistency. Yeah. Yeah. You can only tell me so much. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it's interesting. How did you find your way into this aspect of the working world? Well, uh, back in 1999, I worked for CalSpan, and so I knew about Kubrick from that, you know, working for CalSpan. Uh, I worked for CalSpan for about eight years total. I was there for three, then I left for a few, and then went back. And um, I worked with a government contract for NHTSA, which is the National Highway Safety Transportation Administration. You came out of performing arts. The yes. city of Buffalo. So that wasn't necessarily the trajectory that you were on. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Uh, I am a proud alumni of Buffalo Performing Arts. Performing Arts really gave me the ability to kind of come out of a shell. And I still sort of prefer to be in the background, but um, it, it gave me 
you know, the confidence to speak. Um, I do some marketing stuff, some HR stuff, some support to the project managers and the program managers, and I work directly under our CIO. So um, having the ability to communicate on various levels with different people, including government, performing arts, was the foundation for the ability to go out and do that. At the same time, though, it is interesting to say, okay, here are the arts, and we've got people singing and painting and dancing and all that. (laughs) The arts and STEM are not so far apart. Interesting, okay. You know, I think the creativity for technology to develop and create, to see a problem and want to solve it through technology is not so different from wanting to be creative if you're doing art or theater. You know, you you see a goal and you figure out how to get there and you're just using different skill sets, I guess. Again, I started at Cowspan basically as a temp. And someone took notice of me and said, you know, you have a lot of talent and what do you want to do? And I went from a temp and I was offered a role and, and then that role led to several other roles. Um, I was able to move up and I liked the work. As you were telling your story, you know, those temp jobs, and mm-hmm. I, I don't know if we've all had them, I've had more than a few, that's for sure. Um, the idea that when you're on the, that job, it's as much an audition as it is something that's just going to help give you a paycheck uh, from week to week. Yeah, and to be honest with you, Jay, I was doing that to help supplement my income because I had a, I was actually in school for mental health counseling at the time, and I was working for child and family services in a residential care facility overnights. So Mm -hmm. I had a young child. She was going to school. I think at that time she was at Catholic school, and I, I really needed the extra income. So I went there as a temp during the day while she was in school. While you're working from nine all night? To t- from <laughs> 9 to 2, yeah, crazy. And I've kind of always been like that, always kind of had more than one job. So Yeah, and I want to get into some of your, your side in uh, jobs as well because, not jobs, you have your own companies as well, and those <laughs> yeah. are most certainly interesting. But I want to stay on this idea about tech and the types of people that find their way into tech, and mm-hmm. we both agree that, you know, not enough women in tech. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, the same from kids in the city of Buffalo, you know, uh, kids of uh, uh, children of color. Yes. Um, not enough and most certainly probably not enough women in there. What about that? What, where do you see the disconnect? How is it? Is it is it something that's coming on in the school? Is it is it a, a societal imagery that people are following or not following? What do, what do you think? I don't think it's one thing. I think there are layers, but I do think um, the more we can get out to the kids earlier, um, and I do believe the Buffalo Public Schools are now working on having that starting way earlier. It's a part of the curriculum. I know uh, Dr. Tanja's working very hard at keeping STEM at the forefront so that we can catch up because we're way behind as far as um, the Western world. Um, Definitely in the city of Buffalo, we haven't exposed a lot of our African-American children to the opportunities and and shown them that it's not something that they can't do. You know, we really have to get the opportunities out in front of the children earlier and show them how it works. And let's just be honest, 
all these kids come out now knowing how to use the technology. That's true. We just need to show them how to build and how to work it and how, you know, solving problems with technology is really where we need to head. It's interesting, again, thinking back to your days at performing arts, did you see, and we, we talk about this with, with folks on the show a lot, seeing people who look like me. Do you mean, do it, did I see people like me in technology yeah, at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And to be honest with you, I still don't. Okay. I still don't see very many African-American women in, who are PMPs. I don't see very many. I see women are increasing. We are multiplying in technology faster than men, but it's not African-American women. Our guest uh, this morning uh, on uh, Buffalo What's Next, Tammy Simon-Falden, talking about a lot of different things with with Tammy here. It's been less than a year, so this is still obviously very fresh. Earlier this year, you lost your husband. Yes, uh, my husband passed away in January. Um, The one thing I can truly say is that we lived our lives well while we had the time. And that definitely helps. I don't feel like we left anything on the table. What was your husband's name? His name was Ivan. Tell me about him. Ivan, uh, (laughs) also a very hard worker. Hmm. Uh, He was a correctional officer. He was also a vet. Uh, He served in the Navy when he was younger, and then he served his community by being a correctional officer for 25 years. He um, also had his own landscaping business for about 20 years. So uh, he was retired from corrections, but he still did landscaping for the last several years. So, yeah, very hard worker. Great dad, loved his children. His children were the apple of his eye. Uh, Really family-oriented man. Um, And I was blessed to meet him on a blind date. (laughs) 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 So that's another success story. So friends of ours who knew each other kind of said, Hey, you two might be a good date, you know, and I, I told him and I tell people all the time, I feel like we were still dating seven years later. Oh, that's nice. Uh, his passing, was it sudden or? Yeah, unfortunately, um, COVID and prostate mm. cancer, mm. the combination of the two. I know that you have a lot to, when you mentioned COVID, that you have a lot to talk about in terms of the pandemic, some thoughts about how that has weighed on yourself and on on your community as well. What do you have to say? I really feel like the pandemic forced the world to slow down and look at what was really important. Um, I know it did for for us, and we'd planned to get married in 2020, and a lot of people were like, but it's the pandemic. Are you still going to do it? And We pivoted from our original plan and said that we can't let the world and what's happening outside dictate what what we feel is, you know, we have to keep living, so to speak, until we can anymore. And so I I actually got married during the pandemic, got married in 2020, and within two years, I'm now a widow. So this last few years has been... um, 
a very challenging time, but it's also, there's a story here. There's something I'm supposed to do. And this last three years is part of the journey. How do you cope? Family, prayer, faith. I tell everybody if it wasn't for faith, I don't know what I would do. Um, and even that, you know, I've, I've, usually that's enough. I come from a family of strong, resilient women who are used to just pushing through and, you know, you just keep going and it, it knocked me down. I've, I've struggled some, to be honest. And, um, I think being transparent about that for, for myself, first of all, and saying I need help, um, saying, you know, I'm praying and I'm reading my Bible and that's not quite getting me to where I, I am feeling like I'm totally okay and having to reach out and get help from, you know, family, friends, uh, you know, the medical industry. You have to do what makes sense for you to keep going. Interesting to hear the way you're talking right there because since May 14th, we most certainly have mm. heard mm. about the need for mental health experts and, and counseling. Mm -hmm. um, how about for you? Like you said, you've got to do it your own way. What, what, which, uh, have you taken professional paths as well? Have you absolutely. Yeah? I, I, absolutely. I, I see someone so that I can talk through the process, the grief. Um, you know, you don't, go through something like this without it impacting every area of your life. It's just not possible. Um, and you, you know, the challenge is not to suck the life out of the people around you because hmm. you feel so overwhelmed and sad and angry and you go through all of these emotions and you know that it's not just you feeling those things. Everybody's feeling those things, you know, in their own way. So I knew, you know, myself being someone who was a counselor, the value of having someone to talk through these things with. So, yes, I see someone um, who helps me kind of just get through it. You really have to feel your feelings <laughs> i know okay. i have a friend and she's she's also she's my she's she's my one of my best friends and she always says it's okay to feel your feelings and she's absolutely right you have to if you stuff them they could come back later and cause more problems or people try to medicate or you know do all kinds of things that can be unhealthy um just accepting them and then you know she gives me tools to use to help me through them. You know, I enjoy spending time with my family. I enjoy traveling. I enjoy a good movie. You know, I like to write. Um, I'm working on that right now, writing. Um, I've Sometimes I go back to the one little devotional. I've, I've already written one. So I read that again and remember what I was going through then. And I've always come out on the other side and I I feel like the lesson my husband taught me was 
to live every day as if it's my last day. Give everybody the attention that I can without sacrificing the attention that I need for myself. Do you go in at, at different levels? I mean, some days you go in and think, I'm not going to need to do this anymore. And then you oh, walk yeah. out and you feel the exact opposite. How does that work? Oh, yeah. So there are times when you take a break because you think you're doing a little better and then you crash and you hmm. have to call back and say, yep, I need another session. Um, it's It can be, you know, with mental health, um, with depression, grief, things like that. You're, it's a it's an up and down. Some days you're you're great and you're okay. Well, I shouldn't say great. Some days you're okay. <laughs> um, and you know what? Great is okay because some days I am high off of the good stuff that we experienced together, and I'm smiling, remembering it. And then other days, that same thought mm. takes me out of it, and I just cry. Um, but yeah, I go in and we discuss, you know, whatever it is that maybe I had homework that I needed to do, or maybe I just come in and I sort of throw up in her, in her lap with all the stress of what I'm currently facing. You know, she's there to help me with where I'm at when I walk in the door. And would you advise anybody who's going through things? I mean, we hear a, a lot of Folks who are going through grief over 514, I know you have um, some connections to 514 as well, um, but a lot of the community has that, yes. doesn't it? Uh, what, do, you have a, do you encourage people to do the same? I do. For me and for most people, having a safe space to discuss whatever you're dealing with with someone who has no skin in the game makes a big difference because most of us just need to acknowledge the feelings that we're going through the stress. We need a place to let that out. We need to know that it's okay to let that out, that you're not crazy. You're not whatever you're, whatever you're dealing with. You have a right to feel those feelings. Like I said, I think holding things in can be detrimental to your mental and emotional stability. So whatever way that you can find to get it out, and everybody's way is different. I'm not saying that you have to talk to a therapist. Maybe you draw. Maybe I have family members who sing, who create. And that's the way they create poetry or they're crafting. Whatever you can do that can help you to feel those feelings and get them out and acknowledge them so that you can move forward. You know, that that's how we grow. That's Tammy Simon Balden. This is Buffalo What's Next producer picks, highlights of important interviews from our weekday program on Buffalo's underserved communities. We continue now with Talia Rodriguez from the Westside Promise neighborhood. So Westside Promise neighborhood, I liken to a long table. Essentially what it is, is a group of neighbors, right? And those are all different types of neighbors, corporate neighbors and higher ed neighbors, neighbors like myself, individuals who come together to guide investment, activity and service 
through the West Side. So I work in the Office of Civic and Community Engagement at SUNY Buffalo State College. And one of our responsibilities is to implement what's called the Anchor Mission. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. Can you tell us what that is? Um, absolutely. So the Anchor Mission is um, a commitment that SUNY has made um, and that many other higher eds have made to better understand their roles as neighbors and to use that information to better inform decisions going forward so that they can see positive change from the economic impact that they have, the physical environmental impact that they have. I sit on the sustainability committee at campus um, and also the impact of our social capital. So really understanding how do we leverage our students and our faculty to help the community um, improve the assets that are already there. And you are a West Sider, born and raised? Yes, sir. West Side. <laughs> I knew it was coming. I, knew <laughs> I have it. to. I knew it. I'll I knew. <laughs> so improving the quality of life of the people you see every day is near and dear to your heart. Yeah, I think um, it's kind of like a narrative um, of twofold. So improving their lives by empowering them, right? And then also by drawing on the assets that I think are um, inherent in the infrastructure and the culture of the West Side. Like a lot of things I took for granted. Um, for example, I think one of the most wonderful, like beautiful things about Buffalo, which like reminds me of like a bigger city because my dad's from New York City, is like the um, the fountains, like where all the water comes out. Do you know what I'm talking about at Ralph Wilson? Mm -hmm. There are so many cities where that would be a huge attraction. And people don't think about that as an amazing resource for our kids. I bring my son down there all the time. And I was down there and I just think, okay, that's a resource that we need to highlight and an effort that the city makes to make sure that there's that literal live infrastructure for our kids over the summer. Are there any highlights like the fountain at Ralph Wilson Park that that you see as, hey, we, we, should, we should be talking about this more? We should be highlighting this more throughout the city? Yeah, I'm a super big dork, so you're going to hear it from me. I, everyone who's listening, um, I was at the School of Architecture and Planning for a semester, um, like park architecture, park infrastructure and investment and also um, landscaping, right? Like we have beautiful, beautiful parks. So really excited about that. Big up to Deja and Ralph Wilson and everything they've been doing um, to improve the asset that was already there. But again, I think of, you know, smaller cities, maybe places with less resource and how um, they might envy or how people come here and they love our parks. You know, those are things that I'm really proud of in the West Side. Needs of West Side residents. I said needs. You said something. I said up. opportunities. Opportunities. <laughs> opportunities. In the aftermath of 514, the spotlight has been on problems facing Buffalo's east side. Are the opportunities facing west side residents similar, different? What are you saying? Um, in almost in a way, I think that we divide the west side and the east side. Um, in our minds, and it's divided from an infrastructure perspective, right? But from a human populist perspective, it's not divided. So what we have is West Side schools that have many East Side children in them, and that's an asset and a wonderful thing. So I think what we need to do is really look at where the nexus of activity is for our communities, right? And where we all meet 
where it's all uh, common ground, like school, for example, invest more resources in those places so that we can heal together. Um, you know, I have neighbors that are coming from genocide. I have neighbors that are coming from extreme violence, from refugee camps, you know, gender-based violence. They've been raped. Um, and those are real things that my neighbors carry with them. Those things are their lived experience. But one of the things that I think all of us need to do with together to heal, right? No matter where that source of trauma comes from is to be able to identify it, right? And share it with people so that we can seek the resources that we need. When you say nexus, you, you mentioned schools. Is that also like parks? Is that community centers? Is that, uh, you know, uh, you know, boys and girls clubs boys and, and girls communities. Clubs. Well, you said community center. Yeah, Sorry, yeah, I'm talking yeah. over you. <laughs> um, other places too, and I think you know, like we're going to go in this direction are like places of food and places of commerce. So Broadway Market, Grant Street, um, those places where we come together, but also in those places we're exchanging cultures. Right. And like I'm obsessed with East Side restaurant culture because <laughs> no, honestly, because everyone's like, oh, all the food is in the West. And I'm like, no, there have to be amazing restaurants in the East Side. So I think part of it is making um, a concerted effort to just say, I want to learn more about other parts of the city or other communities that I don't know about. You also have a column in the Latino Village newsletter. Um, you didn't tell me you were going to ask me about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, well, um, what inspired you to start it? What What's the name of it and what inspired you to start it? Okay, so this is a dream. I'm obsessed with NPR. I've been watching um, this channel since I was little. So to be here to talk about this is a privilege. Um, I write a column called Latina History. And it's basically inspired by just what we talked about, this um, desire to storytell and then to kind of collectively heal by like lifting up those assets on uh, social assets are people. So I started writing um, because my grandma who was 97 passed away. Um, she marched with Martin Luther King and she was born um, without the right to vote because women in Puerto Rico weren't given the right to vote until late until the 30s. She was actually 13 before women were given the right to vote. So she saw suffragists protest in Puerto Rico. She came to the United States and protest. And when she passed away, it was the middle of COVID. And I just felt so isolated. You know, I was in my home and I was so used to be a community organizer and to be surrounded by dynamic people. So as I saw the generation before me and the generation behind me kind of not understanding each other, or maybe lacking this shared ability to kind of communicate or storytell because I say in the column, Latinas are so busy. Like we do not have time, women of color, we do not have time. Like time is our number one asset. So being able to write in print is really cool. And the importance to highlight these individuals, who are you speaking to? Um, who are you speaking with? Okay, I love this question. So um, just to kind of clarify too, so the column is carried in the Buffalo Latino Village. It's also carried in Panorama Hispano News, La Ultima Hora in CNY Latino, um, and CNYLatinoNewspaper.com, um, and that's in Binghamton, Albany, um, Syracuse. So who I try to talk to when I write, right, um, is like, like my inner child. I know that sounds so cliche, <laughs> but also like women who don't have digital access, Right. Like women who have limited digital access or women who are socially or um, geographically isolated, because I think those papers, right, our identity specific papers often travel to the places where those women are. So like my dream is always writing for like a little girl on a farm. Mm, mm. Do you have a personal favorite interview or a highlight from that? That's a very good question. Um, I would say actually, oh, it's so hard. 
It really, really is so hard. So can I, can I answer that categorically? Sure. Okay. So I love to interview women of faith. Like I love it because I think it's just so interesting. Um, I also love to interview student advocates because they have so much life. Um, I don't know that I have a favorite interview, but I've, I've written for three years every month. So I don't know how many that is, but um, I am working on an ebook. It's just been a privilege. It really has. Thank you for asking. You're welcome. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Thomas O'Neill White here with Westside Promise Associate Director, Dr. Talia Rodriguez. (laughs) I can call you doctor, right? You may, you may. (laughs) (laughs) You highlight Latinx people through print, but also on the airwaves with a podcast. Yeah, so I have a privilege of um, being able to be on XM Radio. I have um, a radio show um, on 716 Live, and I deliberately interview black and brown business people. Why? Because the conversations need to be had. We have so much energy of division sometimes. So I like to try to create neutral platforms where people feel comfortable and um, their culture can be affirmed. So culturally affirming media spaces. I'm coining that here. You you touched on it just a bit, talking about faith. You are very much guided by your faith. Did that did that come at a, at an early age? Yeah. So I would say I'm half Pentecostal. My mom is like this Irish hippie, um, and my dad is um, Puerto Rican. And he comes from a very socially conservative family. I don't know if anybody knows um, God in Spanish. I would say he's a different guy. Um, But yeah, it did come very early because I struggled with my self-confidence. And I think that I got the message from church and the Bible that I was created perfectly in God's eyes. And I really had to hold on to that because I felt very insecure as a young person. How do you feel now? Um, More informed. As a mother, right? I feel very blessed. Um, But I think as a Christian, um, I like to pray in public. Like, I like to have people see me pray with my son because I think it encourages them. And also, like, in the West Side, we have we have people who have so many different faiths. So it's like, you got to talk about something because mm-hmm. everybody's got their thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> who are some of your influences? Who were some of your influences Should growing I say up? You? Oh, wait, no. In the, <laughs> in the media? Okay, go ahead. Who are some of your influences growing up? And uh, who are who are your influences now? I would say as a media person or as a journalist, um, as a political scientist, Barbara Walters. Why is that? Their posture, the male's posture when they were talking to Barbara Walters, I was like, oh. Because in the West Side, right, a lot of communication is physical because a lot of people um, struggle with English. So for me as a young person, I'm watching Barbara Walters and I'm like, oh, they're posted up. Like, they're scared. Like, here comes Barbara, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, like, it's power. Right. And like, I'm talking about like warlords. They're like, oh, here she comes. <laughs> um, but as a Latina, right, I think, um, I don't know, I'm going to come back to that. But definitely Barbara Walters and definitely strong women, right, in Buffalo. All around me, my neighbors were all strong women, right? And I got that energy really early. So I think being a Buffalo feminist is, might be a little bit easier. <laughs> mm. I try to ask this question to all of my all of my guests. It's very broad okay. and feel free to answer it in any way. What does Buffalo need? 
from your point oh of view? Oh my gosh, this is such an easy question. <laughs> I think Buffalo needs to be celebrated more. We are incredible. I have the means to move anywhere in the country, almost anywhere in the world. My family's lived in the West Side for over 100 years. I have a very place-based identity, but it's because this is a good place, right? It's a dynamic place. It's a place where innovation happens, where, you know, like just... Mucha energia, right? So like for me, which isn't a lot of energy. Um, for me, I think Buffalo just needs to be celebrated more. And I think it needs more spaces like this where like people can come and say, hey, I want to ask you a couple quick questions instead of wondering, right? And then being able to share that across so many communities. Celebrating Buffalo, is that is it that we as as the community in Buffalo need to celebrate ourselves more? Do we need people outside of the region to recognize us? I think all of the above. I think sometimes people don't realize how large of an economic effect Buffalo has on other people outside of Buffalo, right? Mm. Like my, my, my mother's family is Sicilian and Irish. My Irish family's from North Collins and they're rural people, right? So I always think about our almost like economic, social, like uh, what do you call it when you drop something in the water and it ripples? Ripple oh, the ripple. Effect. Right. Ripple effect. Exactly. Yeah. So I think for me, part of it is bringing those people in and saying we're one community, right? Like you come here, this is your nexus of business. This may be your nexus of, of shopping, of higher ed, whatever. And like you're part of our community, but like how do we welcome you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also how do we communicate our strengths outside of Buffalo? Like I don't know how many people want to hear me talk about Frank Lloyd Wright and landscape architecture, but I'm ready. That's Talia Rodriguez. And we wrap up today's program with the venerable Golden Cup Coffee Roastery on Jefferson Avenue and Dave Debo's conversation with owner Larry Stitz. We started off about 12 years ago. I had went to Cameroon, Central Africa with one of the politicians from the county to set up a sister city for Buffalo. And the mayor of the capital city that we were setting up was a coffee farmer and over time we became good friends through the internet and he had dual citizenship between uh cameroon and africa and uh between cameroon and canada and with that relationship he said you should do coffee i said well i'm too busy i can't do it and the next thing i know i was on the internet we're doing research and uh, found a coffee school in Clearwater, Florida, and went and got my uh, roaster's license. And here I am today. I'm roasting coffee. And it has thrived, you said, for 12 years. Yes. Now, that to me is the interesting part because I think there is an argument, and perhaps one that is even more prevalent after 514, that there just aren't enough resources on the east side that there is no business on Jefferson Avenue. You've been running a business there for 12 years. Push back against that, but at the same time address whether or not there are enough resources on the east side. Well, like any other business, you know, you select where you want to be as far as location. And we were committed to the east side uh, to start our business here, my wife is a Buffalonian. She grew up on the east side, not far from here. And we made the decision, that's the community we wanted to serve, to address the businesses on Jefferson. We can use more. 
They're, they're very sparsely located when it comes to Jefferson Avenue. We have a few businesses, but Jefferson can use more uplifting. What does that look like when you say it could use more uplifting? Uh, wave the magic wand. Tell me what you would love to see. Well, I'd like to see some of the chains come in, the food chains, as far as, you know, um, we know that the McDonald's and the big guys aren't going to come, but the smaller ones, we would love to see them come in. And even some of the mom and pop businesses to come back to Jefferson Avenue and make things happen. I, I, I think the opportunity is great right now, and uh, we'd like to see that on the east side here. Are there challenges running a business on Jefferson Avenue that you wouldn't necessarily have if you were on, say, Hurdle or Elmwood? I would say yes, uh, but in order to get rid of those misnomers, if we put the businesses here, they will come, like in any other community. When you were starting up, I imagine you probably had to reach out and get some investment. I have seen you on a television commercial most recently for M&T Bank. Address the uh, the capital side of it. How How hard was it to get that which you needed to start a business? Well, me and my wife were fortunate. We didn't start up. We didn't use the banks at all. Really? We didn't have to have to use the banks at all. We had saved up our money and started it on our own. Uh, we used the banks as a parachute in case we needed it. We went to the banks to fill the gap. But we were fortunate enough to start our business without going to the bank. I imagine that that's not the typical case? No, it's not the typical case. But I can say that the banks have always been there for us if we needed them. Because they have special programs that they, they have for businesses. So the, the lack of investment on the east side you don't necessarily feel is a byproduct of banks not willing to participate? I think since 514, they're kind of changing the way that they handle the east side here and making things a little easier for those business owners that want to start up or improve their businesses. Do you think there is a general lack of resources beyond the banks? Is there something else that they need, uh, that, that people would need to, to invest in the east side? Well, I, I always take it back to City Hall because... People are looking for investment credits and so on. So it, it has to start there as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the politicians got to get involved and do their just do for the community as well on how businesses can be lured to the east side. Because they're not going to just pick up and come to the east side because it's the east side. There's going to have to be some, some kind of carrot dangle out there for them to want to come. I think of Elmwood and I think of Hurdle and I think of uh, the the storefront improvements, the facades, I think of the parking. Uh, can the east side, can Jefferson benefit from infrastructure? Jefferson Avenue is going through what I call a renaissance as far as that goes. We, we have streetscape that they're going to, they rolled out and it's going to improve the traffic flow, the sidewalks and so on here on the east side, up and down Jefferson Avenue. And Jefferson Avenue has been uh, 
there's been grants available uh, from the state that businesses can take advantage of to improve their businesses. What about uh, the vacancy rate? You always hear about how there are so many vacant lots and how housing is an issue uh, in, in certain parts of the city. Along Jefferson Avenue, are there too many vacant storefronts? Is that an issue that also would need to be addressed? I would say not as many storefronts, but I think there's a lot of vacant lots that could be filled with businesses. Larry Stitz is with us. He's the owner and operator, chief coffee roaster at Golden Cup. He and his wife, Jacqueline Stover-Stitz, operate the Golden Cup. They're on Jefferson Avenue now, right near uh, the top shooting scene, in the same building as the Challenger. But I understand, Larry, you're looking at uh, a move to a different spot on Jefferson. You're renovating a building that would be a, a bigger and better space for you. Tell me about that. Uh, yes, we are. We're excited about that. Uh, uh, 1362 Jefferson at the corner of Jefferson and Glenwood. We purchased the building and uh, we're renovating it. And we hope to be in there sometime next year. Uh, it's going to be a much larger space. Uh, it will include our roastery. There will be community space for meetings. And there will also be an incubator for startup businesses uh, there as well. Tell me more about that portion of it. When I think of uh, incubator for startup businesses, my mind goes to... Um Maybe the Grand Street Bazaar that uh, Weedy runs, that kind of thing. Is this space? Well, is this space where someone would come in and operate their own under under your wing? Well, it wouldn't be basically under my wing. We would assist them in helping them get, uh, referring them to business uh, uh, to organizations that would help them uh, with their business. We would provide office space, you know, and instead of them operating out of their home they can operate out of a space at the golden cup i see so uh, their ultimate uh product delivery their retail space wouldn't necessarily be with you but you'd be there as a a place where they can get some extra support right exactly what kind of that's what jefferson avenue needs uh we have the beverly grace center that provides some of those services and uh we just need more institutions that will be willing to help. You, you've answered my next question. I was just going to say, what what kind of things do individual startups need in order to get them rolling? Well, without capital, nothing happens. They, they will definitely need a road to capital. And once they, they, they identify capital, you're going to need a business plan. You're going to need people to help you with that business plan. And you take it from there, and you're on your way. What does that look like when we say a business plan? Is that uh, literally just a, a roadmap for growth and making sure you have your, your uh, finances and your, your checkbook balanced? Well, when you, when you start a business, you've got to know where you're going, and you've got to know how you're going to get there, and that's what that business plan is going to lay out for you so that you don't have a lot of surprises so that you know exactly am I following that roadmap that was laid out for me to be successful. There's a joke out there uh, that I've heard uh, whenever I watch, uh, I don't know, war movies, things like that, that the first casualty of war is the plan, that once you get it out in the field, the business plan or any sort of plan really starts to disintegrate. 
Uh, are you, 12 years later, still on the plan that you thought you'd have back 12 years ago? Oh, we're constantly adjusting our original plan because things don't, per se, work out the way you want them to. So you make that adjustment to uh, cover for that. If you were mayor, what would you, and I don't mean this is a chance to, in particular, criticize the current mayor, but if you were mayor, or if you were in charge of more than you are, is there a new program you would like to see launched that perhaps the city doesn't have right now? You know, you you don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. Uh, there's been a, a, a lot of programs that were put out there that were successful, and you just need to go back in your cadre there and pull those programs back up. I mean, we have statistics on what worked and what didn't work. And so those things that work, you just pull them out instead of trying to reinvent something else. And is that true even more so after 514? Or is there stuff that we need to invent now because the spotlight is on all the issues of disinvestment, uh, segregation, housing troubles, etc.? Well... Housing is an issue that needs to be addressed. Uh, we have sparsely populated lots and things here on the east side, and that needs to be a priority because no matter what kind of business you put on Jefferson Avenue, if you don't have the housing stock to support it, the chances of it failing are great. To what degree is segregation an issue? Um are there enough people on the east side to support east side business, or do you need someone to flock to it like they do perhaps in Elmwood and Hurdle? You're going to always need someone to flock to it. If you build it, I always say they will come. And if we could keep those dollars in our community, that generates growth right there. And you need that housing stock as well, though. You give people options, and they don't have to leave their community to get the things that they need. Are there enough reasons for people who don't live on the east side to come to the east side? Yes, I think that we have some interesting things here. I'll just use my coffee shop for an example. We've had a lot of people outside of the community come here that would have never known about Golden Cup if it wasn't for a tragedy. And, you know... uh, my prayers and my wife's prayers are with those families and, and individuals that lost their lives. Um, but people seem to flock to where there's tragedy and try to support. Buffalo is a very supportive city. Uh, when they say city of good neighbors, uh, I'm a believer in that. Talk to me about that day. Were you in business then? Uh, were, you, were you in the store when things broke out? I was not in the store, but I had my, the store was open and we had staff here. And my first thing was the safety of the employees to close the shop and get out, get out of the area. How long did you stay closed? Probably stayed closed a couple of weeks. I imagine your location and being a coffee shop, I mean, it's a place where people gather, became part of the healing, no? Oh, yeah. Let me just comment on the healing process. This is something that's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in a week. It's not going to happen in a month, a year, or whatever. You know, 
people lost lost loved ones through some senseless stuff. And there's a lot of healing that has to be done. And, you know, we can put up all the memorials and everything that we want, but that's not going to heal the wounds that have been created by this tragedy. And that's the Golden Cup's Larry Stitz. The full interviews from today's program can be heard online on demand at WBFO.org. We are on WBFO each weekday at 10 a.m. with a replay each night at 9. And you can always pick us up wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. Thanks for listening.